have learned a new word, Simon. Which is? Formatrice. A formatrice. Are you a uh, formatrice? Je suis une formatri formatrice. Qu'est-ce que c'est une formatrice? It's a trainer. Ah. But it sounds a little bit more exciting than trainer. Hello listeners and welcome to the Unions 21 podcast, your digital download of all that's good in the trade union world at this precise point in time. With me, Simon Sapper. And me, Becky Wright. And we're delighted to have you along for a special on enforcement, the iron fist in the velvet glove. I'm really sorry, listeners, but the first thing that goes into my head is enforcer a la Snow Informer <laughs> from the early 1990s. I'm not going to sing it. <laughs> no, don't, don't. But um, actually, actually, listeners, have you noticed that an awful lot of this is me having something in my head and Simon going, no, 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 don't. Stay on pull track, back, Becky. Pull back. Pull back. <laughs> Our special guest for this episode is David Metcalf, who is the director of the Office of Labour Market Enforcement. Well, and what is the Office of Labour Market Enforcement, well, Simon? He's going to tell us. Here he is. Well, listeners, with Becky and I now, we're, we're very pleased to welcome... Uh, David Metcalf, Director of the Labour Market Enforcement Office, Directorate. Um, have I got the terminology right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All of the above. All of the above. <laughs> David, thank you so much for spending uh, sp spending time with us. Listeners, I know you won't believe it of either David or myself, but David was my tutor when I was at the London School uh -huh. of Economics <laughs> years ago. Um, <laughs> Only a couple of years, and look how far everybody's come. Indeed. I, I think the, the Director of Labour Market Enforcement is a relatively new role, of course. I think perhaps some of our listeners won't, won't appreciate exactly what its breadth and, and terms of reference are. Could you perhaps start off by describing that? Yes. I mean, the genesis is that about six or seven years ago, the government considered merging three of the four state enforcement bodies. So that's HMRC for the minimum wage, the gangmasters... Authority and the Employment Agencies Inspectorate. At the time, it, they concluded that it was all a bit too difficult to merge them. They, it would have been into a proper single labour market inspectorate um, and instead set up my role. And I've been in the job two years now. And the essence of the job is to provide strategies, an overused word, but in this case it's correct, to provide a strategy for each of the three bodies. Now, as an aside, the government is now considering, again, merging them. And I think perhaps we, we can come back to that later mm. in the conversation. Yes. Yeah. So, you, so, David, you talked about that there uh, were all of these other different bodies, the HMRC, the GLLA, um, and there's also EAS and the um, anti-slavery. I'm looking at Simon because it's the words come out of my head for a minute. But how do you not get in the way of each other? How is it kind of kind of all operated you're all operating in the same space are you different could you talk us through that yeah sure i mean in some ways i've got a lot of sympathy with what you say and as as indeed has the ilo the international labor organization because the international labor organization sort of um kite mark is to have a single inspectorate right, right. Okay. but of course the the bodies have got very very different remits um hmrc they enforce the minimum wage on behalf of the business department. There's actually something called a service level agreement, so they're, they're pretty much told what they have to do. And now, of course, that's, there's another layer to that, which is what, what I say in the strategy. And uh, 
I mean, there was quite a lot of material in last year's, but there's there's particularly uh, quite a lot in this year's, which I'll, I'll come to mm. le- later in the conversation. So that's what the, the, that's minimum wage. Then GLAA originally was set up after the Morecambe Bay tragedy mm. to license gang masters in horticulture, shellfish, food manufacturing. Uh, but recently, a couple of years ago, had its powers extended, so they've now got people with police powers, and they can they can go for offences under any of the legislation that underpins the the, the four bodies, as mm-hmm. it were. Mm-hmm. They're they're tending to focus on the modern slavery. The Employment Agencies Inspectorate is the is in a sense the tiddler of the organisations. Until recently, it only had ten inspectors and there's probably 30,000 employment agencies possibly more um, so they we did recommend more resources and indeed we are recommending this again and the government accepted that recommendation so so the, the, they're quite they're quite discreet in terms of what they do but in one sense that that causes a problem because of course they, they tend not to work jointly together yeah yeah and now my it isn't me but it's my role has been a catalyst for both for let's call it joint working but joint working is information sharing Mm. which is which is very important but also on occasions actual actual joint operations Mm. although they tend to be they tend to be very resource intensive we should we shouldn't forget of course i mean as you mentioned there's the independent anti-slavery commissioner as well although uh, i mean basically i've sort of sort of agreed with their office that you know I keep out of that because I deal with the spectrum just short of modern slavery because you've got the GLA and now the Anti-Slavery Commissioner and the Home Office, for that matter, all, all dealing with that. But we've also got the Health and Safety Executive. Yes. Now, the Health and Safety Executive actually has got more inspectors than the three bodies in my remit put together. So, so that's a big operation. Wow. And it will raise questions when we come to think about a potential merged operation, whether some of that at least should go into the merged operation. So where, if you're dealing with anything to do with working time, for example, yes. mm. it could, there could well be a case, I mean, maybe not the safety stuff, but say the working time issues could well come under a, a new body. Wow. Wow. Uh, fluid, I suppose, is, the, is perhaps one way you could describe <laughs> yes. it. But, but of course, it's not just the not just on the enforcement side that there are, there's quite a crowded space because on the, the sort of policy side as well, there's the Low Pay Commission, there's uh, there's ACAS. I mean, it, it, did the same dynamics that you've described on the enforcement side also apply to policy formulation? Well, well, yes, but but again, both both those bodies which I've got excellent dealings with. I mean, I, I was on Low Pay Commission for ten years, and that's founder yeah. member. But they've got a very specific remit, which is recommend the minimum wage now as it happens alas that remit has been politicized george osborne wanting to save money on tax credits raised the minimum wage now called the living wage uh, up to potentially 60 percent of the median and philip hammond has gone on even further with a view to it being two-thirds of the median so it's really paradoxical this when Labour was not in power in the 90s, the Labour Party policy was a formula. Right. It was indeed two-thirds mm-hmm. of the median yes. to get mm-hmm. the, to be the minimum wage. The Low Pay Commission was set up to get Tony Blair off the hook and Gordon Brown off the hook of that formula. Okay, <laughs> It's been super successful, super successful over the years. And then you get George Osborne 
Amazingly, conservatives who, of course, vigorously opposed the minimum wage in the early early years, um, now wanting a formula and, and putting the formula, I mean, it would put the minimum wage very, very high. I mean, in my view, poten- potentially damaging employment. And likewise, ACAS, I mean, ACAS, first of all, is it's, the helpline is often the first port of call for any of the people wanting to get into the bo- the three bodies I deal with. Right. And of course, they've got their, their conciliation work as well, which is terrifically important. And, you know, man- they manage to get people off the hook uh, a lot. So it, it may be that the, pic- the picture from the outside looks a bit confusing and... and in a way, it doesn't surprise me. And if you were to have a single a single body dealing with enforcement, you probably would put, say, the ACAS helpline in that single body mm-hmm. because that, that would be a way in. You wouldn't put, the, I think, the conciliation work and the arbitration work of ACAS in the single body. Um, and you certainly wouldn't put the low-pay commission because, I mean, that, that's something specific. Look, recommend, yes. recommend the minimum wage. Mm, mm. Um, but you, you can see that there could be bits of, uh, bits of well, I mean, for example, equalities, the Equalities Commission. There could be bits of that that could go in. There are bits of health and safety. And th- but that would all be for discussion. I mean, that's not a matter for me, but it's, an interest, it's interesting from, a, from the union movement point of view or yeah. from, a, from employers' point of view about what might go into it. Yeah. Well, it is as well, and, 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 and the question is, if you then, say, take the helpline function away from ACAS, what does that do to what's left of ACAS, and does it, does it cause viability problems for that organisation? It, 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 it's winners and losers, it's, not a, it's absolutely not a straightforward issue. Well, this actually was one of the things that occurred to me just as David was sort of talking, you know, we know that the world of work is going to change, we, we know that there are going to be, um, you know, I don't, we've sort of talked about it, I'm not an alarmist, I don't sort of look at those ONS head figures are saying 1.5 million jobs are going to be kind of lost and you think oh my god we're all going to go to hell in a handcart but there is there is a lot of change in in the world of work and how do how does a body such as yours David and all of these others kind of cope with that is it is it an easy evolution or is it a hard a hard thing to still kind of grasp no that that's a that's a very interesting question i mean i let's do the minimum wage first of all i mean the the change there has been to bring in the living wage and of course that covers more people so you're going to get more complaints now to be fair to the government they've actually put more resources in they've doubled the resources the enforcement resources over the last couple of years lpc sorry the hmrc's got 400 or so inspectors presently so you know they've got quite quite a lot of resources that's um, hmrc dealing with the minimum wage the one very important area where the change where there's been change is the whole question of employment agencies say app-based recruitment yeah. for example the the plethora now of umbrella companies payroll intermediaries personal service companies mm. there's a terrific diagram in the um the strategy that was published in may which was provided for us by hmrc where you get a job via an employment agency and the woman then is told uh you've got to go to a payroll company and the payroll company says to her, you've got to set up as a personal service company. Okay, she suddenly finds she doesn't get the minimum wage. What does she do? She sues herself. Okay, yeah. well, it's a scam. Mm. It is they're, they're not paying national insurance properly. They're not paying income tax properly. The workers are getting exploited. I mean, in some senses, this is, reflects the fact that the employment agency's legislation dates back to the, 80, to the 1970s. Mm. It's, it's um, analog-based legislation. Yes. Yeah, yeah, this is what we, yes. Oh, you use my expression. <laughs> yes, and and 
so, so you're absolutely right. We we've got to think about how how well the the legislation may need as they say, refreshing. Mm. But, I mean, we've got to, in some senses, anticipate the changes in the world of work, yes, yes yeah. and, and keep up with them. And the poor old uh, Employment Agencies Inspectorate, well, uh, some of some of these are sort of not necessarily as remit, but some of them are based abroad, for example. So it, it's very hard for them to, yeah. to be able to deal with this. And I do think here there's an area where the legislation does need some alterations. Mm, interesting. You spoke about you spoke about that sort of atomization of the employment relationship, which, which in enforcement terms means there's a scam and there's a there's a need to to make sure that regulation and enforcement catch, catches up with that. But when you think about the role of unions, and obviously our you know our, our primary audience, primary concern are, 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 is the union world. I mean, you you you've acknowledged you acknowledged in your report last year the role played by unions in in, in enforcement and preventative work as well. What do you think? What more do you think unions need to do, or what steps do you need to do you need do you think they need to take to ensure that collective voice remains relevant and heard in an increasingly digital economy? Well, this is this is a I mean it's, it's a difficult question overall, but it's a particularly difficult question for for union officials. In my academic work, I used to deal with the unions, sort of refer to unions in the research as having. A vested interest effect, so an effect on wages and on productivity, and a sort of justice effect, so making for greater equality. And one component of the sort of justice was the important part that they played in, and indeed still play, in enforcing labour market regulations. Mm. So the fact that we, when I entered the game about 40 years ago, nine out of ten people had their pay determined by collective bargaining. Yeah. Now it's it's about twenty five percent of people, a quarter of people, have their pay determined by collective bargaining. So that's a profound change. Interestingly, hand in hand with that, this is a statistic people, a, a sort of a, an issue people don't seem to worry about very much. Labour's share in national income, so the share of national income going to wages, has fallen from just over two thirds to just over a half. This is a little mm. remark, mm. a little remark yeah. on mm. change. Yeah. And uh, I mean that's a profound change in 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 what a generation and a half, let's say, forty years, thirty-five years, forty years. So, so the decline of unions has had a, a, a major a major impact on it, sort of if you want well labour share e equality there, but also on the enforcement of the regulations. Yeah. But when it comes to what to do about it, that that seems to me more difficult. I mean the the obvious the obvious thing to say is. Unions find it almost impossible getting new recognitions in the private sector. Yeah, yeah. We've, we've done in-depth work in, in for the strategy this year in the hotel sector. There's, I think, about two percent of the hotel sector are union members. That's right. And, yep. and the, the firms are very hostile to having unions in to treat to treating with union officials. So, so if you can get new recognitions, all well and good. Now, I know from. Uh, you know, talking to friends at the TUC and from other unions, what they would like is to have the right of entry into non-union workplaces. Mm. And I've always said, well, I might be quite sympathetic to that in the sense because we've had the decline of collective bargaining, but that's not a matter for me. I mean, it isn't my job to write yeah, the industrial, yeah, yeah, yeah. industrial relations legislation. As it happens, there is an area in this year's strategy where we have tried to be helpful, which is when in the ACAS guidelines about mm. taking taking a case 
to an employment tribunal, you can only take them on an individual basis. Yeah. Yes. And one or two of the unions, and possibly the TUC, suggested that they, they should also be possible to take it on a collective basis. Mm. And we've recommended that ACAS should review their guidelines to probably accommodate mm. that. So, but that's, I think, that's mm. a, that would be a minor help. Yeah. But it's it doesn't go to sort of filling the void that the decline of uh, coverage of collective Indeed. bargaining yeah. Has, has, has come. I often think about this idea of enforcement, you know, cooking dinner, having, you know, sitting down doing other things because I'm that much of a geek. But the whole, I, you know, in the last sort of 20 odd years, the number of people who work for one employer has quite radically reduced, which... You know, so so most people work in a micro business, nine or under, nine employees or under, and it just makes me think how how hard enforcement must be when the majority or, or a large proportion of our workforce are in these really small businesses. It's not like you can go into Waitrose or even some of these large private sector employers and sort of say, right, yeah, okay, we've gone into here and it will affect all these workers. You know, things like, you know, hairdressers and nail bars and all of these sorts of, you know, enforcement or kind of any form of collective voice seems really hard. And you've recommended extending the licensing regime to nail bars and car washes. I mean, is this kind of a similar thread to the thinking I've had or is it? Completely no, it, no, no, it, it, it follows from it. But, but can I say, you've put mm. your finger on something to do with workplace size, but the problem is actually deeper than that. It, the Americans have got a very nice word for it. Uh, this guy called David Vile. He's yeah. done a lot, yeah. of, lot no, of work. We love, a friend of and, ours. We yeah. love yes. him. <laughs> and, I mean, he, he refers to the fissured workplace. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So with all the franchising and the subcontracting. So mm. even, if, mm. even if you've got a workplace with, with a lot of people in it, yeah. it doesn't follow that they're, they're all... With the same employer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, for, indeed, it's very, un, very unlikely that yeah. they're with, they're with the same employer. Increasingly, going to look like that. So, yeah. so you work, the fall in the workplace size is mm. absolutely one thing, but it's it's the way it's the change in the employment relationship, if you want, yeah. and who your employer is. I mean, there's a lot of workers that, who don't know what their employer is. Now, cu- coming to the licensing specifically, some of the NGOs and one or two of three or four of the trade unions were very keen on licensing. Uh, some people wanted licensing. I mean, I think Unison probably wanted licensing in care. UCAT, as was, Unite now, mm. thinking about licensing in construction. How do I put this? It's very easy to call for licensing. Yeah. But actually, you've got to present some sort of a benefit-cost analysis. Mm. And you've also got to say where the resources are going to come from. Because mm. you don't want licensing to just be a tick box, tick box exercise because you've got to be able to go back and you've got to be able to yeah. check. You know, there's recidivist employers, so you've got to be able to check them. And so in our sort of profiles of the at-risk sectors, car washes, hand car washes and nail bars came out towards the top. And so what we thought, we didn't actually call for licensing for the whole sector. What we said was, look, let's see if licensing would work. Why don't we take a, a particular couple of geographical local authorities, mm-hmm. so say Nottingham, but then have a control group with no licensing, say Leicester. Right. Mm-hmm. And you do an experiment, you get 
and I've, you know, I've spoken to the academics up in Nottingham and Leicester. They'd be very keen then to do an evaluation. And you, you evaluate, well, is the licensing working? Mm. And the, the same for the nail bars. Now, <laughs> the, the government has sort of pretended it's accepted this recommendation, but actually it hasn't. Right. It, wow. what, they, what they are pushing, particularly in the car washes, is a voluntary licensing scheme. Mm. Now, of course, <laughs> who can be against that? I'm in favour of it, but it doesn't get the twenty thousand or so estimated <laughs> yeah, yeah. ones that well, wouldn't wouldn't join the voluntary. Yeah, yeah, usually if you don't join the voluntary one, that you're yeah. the ones there's a problem. Precisely. So um, we've we have returned to this again, and I, I mean, I, 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 we have to go into licensing with our eyes open. It's resource intensive, mm. and we need mm. to know whether the benefits outweigh yes. the costs. Yeah. Mm. But but I mean, how can we do this without you know? Let's do some experiments mm. with, yes, with control groups. Yeah. Evidence-based policymaking. Precisely. Ooh. Precisely. I don't know. I'm not a massive fan of evidence. I just like to say what I think. <laughs> As listeners will know. But so, so that kind of that kind of um, perhaps skews the picture a little bit in terms of our next question, which which was something that came through from from the, the 1819 report about about, uh, about responsibility for compliance along the entire length of a supply chain. I, I mean, I, I wondered how close do you think we are towards getting some consensus that that's a good thing, not just conceptually, but in, in kind of practical well, terms. Well, I mean, it depends how you, it depends how you, we attack this. By and large, the trade unions were keen on what's called joint liability. So you immediately make the brand, I mean, let's say for the sake of argument, Sainsbury's, mm -hmm. liable for what goes on down the supply chain. I think that First of all, that's too adversarial an approach, given that we haven't had anything. And it, not surprisingly, the big retailers but uh, and the CBI were very hostile to this. So I floated the idea of a more cooperative approach, which is HMRC comes in and it finds there is a problem with a supplier, you know, a couple of layers down the supply chain. HMRC go to the brand and say, well, first of all, it goes to the firm and says, get your house in order. Yeah. Then mm. it goes to the brand and says, look, you've got a problem a couple of layers down the supply chain. Don't wash your hands of the firm. Help them get it right. We'll be back in three months. And, you know, if you haven't done, then we, we will have some sanctions. And the CBI and the British Retail Consortium who, who I think are the you know, major players in this, were both very, very keen on this because they, they don't want to be undercut. Of course and, not. And, and yeah. they value their reputations. Yeah. Mm. And so somewhat to my surprise, when I mean, the government accepted out of the 37 recommendations, I think it accepted 29 of them, but this is one they want, this is one uh, together with the hot goods that, that yeah. you can't move the goods, as it were, yeah. if you're, if you're non-compliant. They actually want to consult on well, if they can, if they can sell, I mean, the, the the friends in the union movement will say it doesn't go far enough. We, mm. should, we should have joint liability, but it's the CBI and the British Retail Consortium, I mean, we you know the evidence is actually there in the report are, are keen on this, and they would sign up for it. So, yeah. so I think I think we are near to getting some form of uh, cooperation to deal with the supply chain, 
but it doesn't go as far as some of the unions and the NGOs wanted. And I mean, my response to that is, well, we can keep the more adversarial material in our back pocket, and if the cooperative approach doesn't work, then it may be, maybe we need to be more adversarial. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's funny. I mean, you know, as you know, David, I'm a low pay commissioner with, a, you know, in, a, in another life, and. When, well, no, this we, we, one, but uh, well, this hat. one with another hat. Just, Thank you. Yeah, just yeah. to clarify that yeah. Simon's not skipping through. <laughs> <laughs> but 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 you know the experience that we've had there about about something that there's a consensus. There's a consensus between the academics, the unions, and and business. And you put the recommendation into government, and the government says, "Oh, thanks very much. Uh, we'll consult on this." What what more consultation do you need? And also, if you've got experts in a particular field. Yeah. Why? Why talk to them and then say, "Oh, and get yeah, them but, to do all that work uh, in the first anyway. place." Hey ho, that's that, well, that rant over. But, okay, uh, yeah. So that's our weekly rant ticked off for thanks for this. Well, yeah. I, <laughs> well, I mean, I I think I'm not telling tales out of school if I say that. I mean, within Bayes, there there will be a certain creative tension between the people who think, yes, we should be doing the enforcement, but mm. those that worry about productivity, regulation, and so on. Mm. And it may very well be that within Bayes, the idea of sort of doing something in the supply chain and the hot goods would have found favor in some parts of Bayes and less so in other parts right. of the department. But I mean, I was quite surprised because it's there in black and white that the mm. CBI and the British Retail Consortium both support it. Yeah. Yeah. So you hmm. mentioned the 1819 recommendations. Uh, I believe your 1920 report's been submitted to ministers. I mean, would it be really cheeky of me to ask for a little sneak preview, David? I no, mean, it wouldn't you be. You know, at just all. amongst <laughs> friends. And our, yeah. our, our worldwide and our, audience. And yeah, I was going to say, your, two, your 10 million <laughs> listeners, yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I mean I'm very happy to go into sort of what the what the themes are. It, the the previous strategy was a bit glitzy. I mean it did have, well we've got to get holiday pay sorted out. We've got to do the supply chains and the hot goods. We've got to deal with the umbrella companies. So it had lots of I mean it had a lot of initiatives. This one is much more technical, right. and essentially we go into three areas. The first one is, have have we got the resources right and are they being used correctly? The second is, can we get better compliance? And the third is issues of joint working. We also deal with two sectors in detail, which is warehousing and hospitality. So right. we go, go into there. So areas which look like they might grow as well in terms uh, no, of... No, exactly, yeah. exactly. So within within resources... I mean, when, well, first of all, we say that the Employment Agencies Inspectorate need, needs more resources be, I mean, to deal with the 30,000 employment agencies, but also it's got to deal with these umbrella companies and mm. so on now, mm-hmm. in conjunction with the tax people, H- HMRC tax, not HMRC minimum wage. And, and you know, the government has accepted that recommendation, so so it, it, it needs more resources. Um we don't think at this stage we can ask for more resources from HMRC because actually the government has doubled the resources over the last couple of years. And in a way, it's a matter of seeing how they're used. Now, seeing how they're used, we, we, well, we've got one or two recommendations, but we're sort of raising questions. The, the question is along the following lines. Are you going for the low-hanging fruit in a sense to get, in inverted commas, easy wins mm-hmm. rather than the more egregious non-compliance with the minimum wage so it is true that hmrc last year that they've got wage arrears for two hundred thousand people 
But the average was only of the order of £70. That's right, it was modest. And this is largely because of 10 cases mainly to do with the, in the retail sector. Now, I recognise that the law doesn't say, it doesn't distinguish between what sometimes we call, and we, we, we call it in this report, technical offences and more serious offences, if you want. But some of the offences were sort of salary sacrifice schemes, which have been voluntarily en entered into, okay, mm. and, the, and then the worker loses out. Yeah. Mm. Because, you know, the, the, she, she's not getting uh, travel uh, subsidies or some such thing like that. Mm. And... And frankly, that that does seem that does seem a bit silly, and it, it is a it is technical. I mean, I recognise that you know you don't open it up to the cowboys. I recognise that, but in a good firm where it's all done voluntary, and the same the same to do with say uniforms, for example. That's a, that's another area where there, there are some really quite technical issues. Again, I recognise the law doesn't distinguish there, but it's it's quite plausible that as a consequence of putting more resources into these these big cases that we're actually missing out on serious non-compliance. Mm -hmm. I mean, I shadowed the serious non-compliance team up in Manchester for a little while. And, well, I don't want to sort of say quite what they said, but they did say that they thought that they could be kept busy in, you know, just one town, as it were. Yeah. And sort of if you're putting more resources into say doing retail oh my question is are we missing out on that i don't want to this is not being overly crit critical because one of the issues is we that hmrc and the other two bodies have not got a history of actually evaluating quite how they're using okay. of the, of the, right. how they're okay. using their resources well they, they say i mean to their credit oh we had 2600 closed cases last year that generated 200 so 200 people um £100 each yeah, yeah. Wa wager is well yeah but the question is what's, what's the impact on the wider compliance mm. does it have a deterrent effect yeah, yes. yeah. and yeah. having some prosecutions where people are being underpaid £10,000 it could be the local butcher I yeah. mean I don't know but having some prosecutions like that may well have got may well have a, a sort of a stronger deterrent effect and, and ultimately has a greater effect in terms of shifting perceptions and behaviours yes so, so that actually it becomes unquestionable that, of course, you're not going to be you anything other be than down. compliant. Yeah. Because, yeah. because why would you be anything other? Because yeah. the, the social pressure as well as the regulatory yeah. pressure mm. is mm. such. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ooh, gosh. Oh, that sounds so, very interesting. That does, indeed. I shall so. make sure to download a copy from the LME website when it's... Yeah. Uh, I mean, oh. if I can just sort of talk a little bit about the compliance side of it as well, mm -hmm. if that, if that yeah. would be helpful. As you know, the government didn't accept... The recommendation last year that we increase the fines a bit. Yes, I, I um, well, I, to be fair to them, what what the what they've said, you know, the, with the officials, my meetings with the officials, is look, we put the penalty multiplier from fifty percent of the wage arrears to a hundred percent to two hundred percent, so twice the, the fine becomes twice yeah. the wage arrears, yes. the civil mm -hmm. the civil penalty. Uh, why don't we evaluate? The deterrent effect of that first. Yeah, you can't really argue okay. with that line, actually. Well, <laughs> well, I mean, I'd always give it a go, but I mean, yeah, I But, I'll but take in point. some senses, my question is, yeah, but get on with it. Yeah, 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 absolutely. yeah get on with it. <laughs> yeah. um, so, so we haven't returned to that. There is also, to, to be fair to the business department, my understanding is that they have had legal advice that 
if you go to a fine to say five times the wage arrears, it could be held to be disproportionate. Now, that's an, inter- that's an interesting question. Mm. And I would think that if you went elsewhere, you might get different legal advice. Um, <laughs> yes. But um, for, for, the time being, for the time being, we've let that rest. But the consequence of not having the higher fines is that we, de- we do need to get better compliance in the first place. Yes. And so particularly to do with HMRC, we think that their guidance, I mean, it's, it, it's sort of all over the place, and th- there's very little sector guidance. They very seldom work, say, with a trade union like Unison in the care sector or the British Retail Consortium in retail to produce sector-level guidance. Mm-hmm. And, and okay. Unison, to take an example, yeah. or Unite in construction, are, would be very keen to join with the, the equivalent employer body and with HMRC to, to give sector-level guidance. And so we're, we're making suggestions that um, the unions and the trade bodies sort of yeah. get, get invited in. And I think that, that, that if we could get overall the guidance being better, that's a matter for Bayes and uh, HMRC together, but then uh, Bayes HMRC drawing in greater experience yes. from you know the, the, trade un- the trade unions and the trade associations, we think that that, that would do... Um, that would that would just basically help to get the better compliance. Yes, yeah. I mean, the, the, we went down to see the pensions regulator, and they've got a very good reputation for getting getting compliance. And the way that they put it is, we've we've sort of done the journey to to do it. That if you basically follow our steps, you will be compliant with the law. Yeah, and I yeah. and I think yeah. that we should be trying to do the same thing. In, in minimum wage, well, minimum wages in particular, but probably in the yeah. other areas as well. Absolutely. Interesting. There's a clearly full workload for the future. <laughs> so, yeah, yes. what, so speaking of the future, David, you said at the beginning that there was a proposal to merge all of these different agencies and talk to us a bit more about yeah. that as going down the line. So it'd be interesting to hear a bit of your thoughts on, no. on this. Yes, I mean, the government announced in December that they were intended to consult on merging the three bodies that we've been talking about. But, of course, you could have some of the health and safety executive and you know maybe, maybe one or two other bodies included as well. Um, my position has always been that if you were starting with a blank sheet of paper, you'd have a single inspectorate. That's what the ILO recommends. And I'm very keen, therefore, to contribute to the consultation um, I think the paper will come out a little bit, uh, the consultation document will come out after Easter. And I mean, I would encourage friends in the trade union movement as well as elsewhere to respond to the consultation if you've got any views on it. For me, I think there, were, there are three areas where the merge, a potential merger, it could of course be a completely new body rather than a merger. That actually is quite a, a, an interesting question for change management. But, but there are three areas which I think where it ought to be very positive. The, the first is it ought to make things simpler for workers, the employers, and for the enforcement officers. The workers will know where to go. Mm. Whereas now, lots of them simply don't know, and I mean, indeed often their first protocol is Citizens Advice Bureau, for example, because they simply don't know where to go. The second thing, in, in, the new body could do is they we've been talking about some very old-fashioned legislation as it were yeah we could modernize it for the work the new world at work mm. yeah 
And I mean, particularly, let's say, let's take the recruitment agencies and app-based recruitment and so on. And so we could, we could indeed, you know, sort of really, really update it. And then, again, I, I, I don't like overusing the word strategic, but I think, I think we could make enforcement more strategic. Have we got the right balance between compliance and deterrence? Mm-hmm. If you can get better compliance in the first place, you don't need so much on deterrence. Mm. But, if, but if we're not doing well on compliance, then you've got to have the deterrence. And this all needs thinking through. I mean, anybody who's sort of going to be running the new body will want to think through quite what that balance is. But I do, I do think that the new body gives the potential for, for doing this. I mean, I think one has to go into this with eyes wide open. It, it, it's not going to be an easy matter yeah. to do a merger, stroke set up a new body. And obviously, you still want to be doing enforcement in the meantime. Yes. But but I think if you know if we go into this, have a good consultation, and if we were to pursue this, you know, I don't know how long it would take over a two two year three year period, we'd come out at the end of it with a better enforcement regime. There you go. Wow. Watch this space. <laughs> watch watch this space. David, thank you very much for spending time with us. Oh, my pleasure. Um, and uh, and we look forward to. The publication of your yeah. 1920 report. Yeah, I'm, I'll, I'll uh, date it when we get the news <laughs> of when it's going to be published. And well, Becky, I think that the problem or the challenge, and David brought it out in his conversation with us, is mm. it's all very well having a law, but unless it's enforced and enforceable, it's a bit like, I don't know. Well, is it, yeah, is it worth the paper it's written on? And the interesting thing is, I'm going to try and bring a few kind of threads together. I was rereading the recent ETUI paper on delivery drivers, uh, delivery strikers, uh, platform uh, workers in Belgium, which is definitely worth a, a, a read. And one of the things that kind of came up with that, and that I'm hearing quite a lot in just conversations with colleagues, is this idea of enforcement. Like, we have these laws, how are they enforced? Are they resourced to be enforced? And actually, it comes right down to that fundamental thought of unless you have a strong union in your workplace, good amount of union members, a strong kind of representative uh, system, then that enforcement just really can't happen. Yeah, well, the union, the union movement and unionised workplaces are the best bet for for safe patterns of work, for enforcement, and Mm. so on. And and the the point I think you've just made, Becky, was emphasised by a new initiative that was reported on by the Gangmasters Authority. Yeah, I turned the radio on this morning and I just started listening to the GLA talk about the the impact of fast fashion and how that has sort of created this this boom in kind of almost slave labour, I think, Uh, in certain sweatshops, the the return of the sweatshops, yeah. Um, And uh, and there was an excellent piece by Sarah O'Connor in the Financial Times about six months or so so ago about that. So it's not new, but uh, what the Gangmasters Authority spokesperson was saying is, we know it's there, we're going to do our best to do something about it, but, and this this is the point, there is a there's a real problem because a lot of these sweatshops English is not the first language English yep. may not even be spoken there are lots of yep. kind of familial or other social social connections how do you get a regulatory framework that deals with those sorts of challenges yeah and and that was one of the things that the the, the, the spokesperson talked about was the idea of who can do the reporting yes 
and, and how and where does that go and how do all of these sorts of things link up and it brought to mind again this idea of well you can have this kind of legal framework and you can have and you can rely on the state to, to do all this kind of stuff but that's not a perfect uh, answer to a lot of these things these are good initiatives and they're good things to have but we need to find a place for for there to be kind of unions in workplaces to um, stop this kind of abuses. And, and the, the sort of changes that are afoot that maybe will give, I mean, there's obviously a, a long-standing demand, it's on the TUC bucket list, priority list, call it what you want, to give unions access to workplaces, to, to non-organised mm. workplaces. And we heard David in, in our discussion with him talking about the possible ability of collective cases to be lodged yeah. with ACAS. So there are things that are moving slowly in our direction, but it, I mean, they've got to move a long way. Yeah, and I, and I do think with all of these changes in the world of work, this is the sort of stuff that that kind of every part of the economy has to kind of grapple with and fundamentally agree that exploitation at work is not a good thing. Well, it's not a good thing for employers as well as employees, of course, because it means that bad employers squeeze out, squeeze out good ones. Mm. Uh, okay, you can have an argument about there are no good employers, but actually, you know, we know that's not the we know that's not the case. There are a range of uh, of, of employers, and those that are compliant and wish to be compliant with good standards are, are very much to be uh, applauded for that. Yeah, and also just how our legal framework is actually geared towards the idea that people are in micro businesses or very small businesses, and actually to get union recognition in those areas would be really hard. Ah, but then you get into a, a, a different area, and this is a kind of filed under don't get me started which is that's exactly why you need some sort of sectoral machinery with government facilitating the things that will make employers and employees get get together possibly facilitated by ACAS as we discussed with Brendan Barber in our, our, our podcast with him possibly I'd said don't get me started <laughs> so I was like on a Total, like, I'm on a mission. Yeah, but I mean, look, these are all these sorts of things, and I think it's really good that we chatted with David and kind of got a bit of an insight in what they're doing because I think it can help unions across the board to think about the types of work they're doing, where they're going, and kind of how they can work with agencies such as he oversees. Indeed, it does. We hope you enjoyed that, listeners. If you did, or if you didn't, tell us about it. We want to make podcasts. If you did, if you did. We want to make podcasts that you continue to love to listen to. You can join the discussion by emailing us at info at unions21.org.uk and you can tweet us at unions21. Yeah, tell us, tell us what you like, listeners, and tell us what you'd like to hear about. And I think we've, already, you know, we've had some people come and say, oh, come to our branch and do this, and that'll be the sort of thing that we're going to follow up in due course. Absolutely, it is. Also, listeners, if you could rate us on the podcast platform of your choice, it would be really important. Be our own algorithm breakers, listeners. Absolutely. And obviously, like and share as well. But until the next time we come to you, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. We've been asked to point out that the current statutory code of practice discussed in this podcast on disciplinary and grievance procedures currently provides practical guidance on how to handle grievance situations occurring in the workplace. Failure to follow the ACAS code of practice is not an offence. However, if the guidance is not followed, this can be considered by an employment tribunal 
when considering a case and any financial award can be adjusted by up to 25% for unreasonable failure to comply. The code currently applies only to individual grievances but not collective grievance processes. We're happy to make this clear. The Union's 21 podcast was presented by Becky Wright and Simon Sapper. It was a Makes You Think production.